0: Good morning, everybody. Welcome to a fresh trading week. In your headlines this hour, oil prices gain as the UK calls Iran's seizure of a British tanker in the Strait of Hormuz an illegal act, with the government set to deliver a response to Tehran
1: later today. And Britain's Finance Minister, Philip Hammond, says he'll resign this week if Boris Johnson becomes the UK's next Prime Minister.
2: Assuming um, that uh, Boris Johnson becomes the next Prime Minister, I understand that his conditions for serving in his government would include accepting a no-deal exit on the 31st of October. That is not something I could ever sign up to.
0: Stocks soar in the first day of trade on the new Shanghai tech board as China debuts
3: its answer to the NASDAQ. Japan's ruling bloc falls short of a supermajority in the upper house election, throwing Prime Minister Shinzo Abe's push for constitutional reform into some doubt.
4: Plus chaos in Hong Kong. Hundreds of thousands of protesters clash with police in the seventh straight weekend of pro-democracy demonstrations in the Chinese territory.
0: Uh, so, very good morning, everybody. Let's um, kick off the programme this morning uh, with some corporate earnings, since we are in the midst of corporate earnings season this point. Um, the uh, numbers from uh, Julius Baer just trickling through. Uh, the group giving us um, an IFRS net profitable attributable to shareholders of 343 million. That's an earnings per share number of one Swiss one Swiss. Frank, 58. That is an improvement, uh, they say, of 18% from the uh, second half of 2018 and a decrease of 23% from the first half of 2018. Adjusted uh, net profit then uh, for the group, 391, an increase of 18% on the uh, second half, as I mentioned there. Um, number of lines in here that are worth just uh, walking you through. 100 million cost reduction program initiated at the start of 2019 on track. Uh, gross cost savings expected to start materializing partly in financial results for the second half of. 2019 and fully in 2020, uh, the group recorded 17 million Swiss francs of one off redundancy costs related to uh, the uh, headcount reduction program in the first half of 2019. Net profit recovered considerably from challenging second half of 2018, driven by a strong sequential increase in asset valuations and gross margin. Um, The group giving us a capital ratio for those who care about the capital position of these financial organisations, the ratio in at 13.1%, which uh, looks like uh, an increase on the 12.8% from the end of 2018. Adjusted uh, pre-tax margin, two hundred twenty three basis points up, 3.1 basis points higher from the second quarter of 2018 down 6.8 basis points from the first half of 2018. I could go on yeah, because can, there can, is plenty yeah. in there. But <laughs> um, do we want to have a little chat about um, how Julius Baer is doing?
3: Got a new CEO, uh, Philip Reckenbacher, is coming in. Hmm. Bernhard Hodler wasn't in the position for very long. Taking over from Boris Collardi as well. So what kind of bank CEO is he going to be? Uh, bearing in mind, we need a period of calm, don't we? we have three different CEOs uh, in a shortish 18 month period, that is quite a turnaround as well. The other thing I would say is about depending on what your time frame is, these shares are very, very interesting. They've got around about 3.5% yield, which I'd imagine is fairly near the average for the sector. But the shares year to date are up 22%, and that sounds pretty good, doesn't it? But if you look at the 52 week chart, they are nowhere near their 58 uh, Swiss franc high of that period, down to 43. And actually, if you look at the most recent high in the, on the five year chart, January 2018, they were trading over 64 euros per share. So there is a lot of work to do to get this one back on track in terms of the pricing as well. Interesting, the company talking uh, about activity picking up a little bit after uh, a tougher previous period.
4: I'm with you on the management changes. Looking through the release, there is nothing that really uh, goes to mention what's happened in the C-suite. And uh, the removal of Holler after, what, 12 months in the top job and there's done succession planning for replacement tells you that there's something not quite right in this business. So uh, I think uh, the next year ahead will be quite a challenging one for the company to try and prove that there's nothing behind the scenes for investors to worry about. And I just think
3: very rare at the weekend, you two, I yeah. actually had a mm. dinner with a banker. Um, I don't normally hmm. do that weekends, but I made the exception. Very nice chat. Works for um, one of Did the. Did you get the loan? Did I get the loan? No. I, I didn't right. know. No, oh, unfortunately, okay. no. Uh, I thought Parallel wasn't good enough credit risk. He thought I was you, not for the first time. Um, But um, he was saying it's very difficult for the Swiss banks now to work on their USP. What is their unique selling proposition in the 21st century in an era of GDPR, in an era of actually you can't have the secrecy, which has always been the unique selling proposition of the Swiss banks? finding their way in the 21st century in a very uh, open era is very difficult for them. And of course, they can't charge as much as they used to uh, for that very reason. And that is the point with these banks in Europe, isn't it? That ultimately,
0: they have to acknowledge uh, the same pressures that we saw the US banks respond more quickly to. And that is that you have to manage down uh, business expectations because the pie in Europe appears to have shrunk somewhat when it comes to Um, the potential for profitability but at the same time you have to cut charges to your customers and you have to increase your payout to your shareholders So you're being asked to do several challenging things at the same time, but if you don't do that, then you are ultimately going to be punished in terms of your share price performance.
4: A little bit hard to shed a tear that a clean-up of the banking system with more transparency means that the private banks in Switzerland are not doing so well. Uh, Let's push on. I'm looking at Philips numbers this morning, and this is a a fairly well-regarded company, and if you look at the share price performance, it's been well up there in terms of one of the better performers on the stock market, 25% higher year-to-date. What is left Though, is what investors are looking forward to because this is a company that some investors are holding for the long term, and there's a lot of expectations now priced into the stock. Q2 sales have uh, crossed at 4.7 billion euros, that is a 6% to comparable sales growth rate. 8% comparable order intake growth. Uh, in terms of the comments from the CEO, Francis Halton, he said he's pleased with that 6% comparable sales growth rate in the second quarter and that all businesses were contributing. If you do the breakdown by various different parts of the business, that is true. The diagnosis and treatment business are up 6%. And when you you take it to a connected care business, that's also uh, increased by 6% at uh, the comparable rates. And the personal health business, that delivered at 5%. So very even across the business. Some of them, when you break down by different components, are not as even across the board as you're seeing in Philips. But uh, the numbers are all pretty much uh, in the same realm. The uh, income from continuing operations increased to €260 million compared to €186 previously. And that's important, the comparables in this business and the underlying numbers because there was uh, a little bit of noise with the spin out of Signify, the the Philips lighting business, uh, more than 12 months ago now. But uh, just a little bit of noise in the numbers still that investors have had to see through. But the underlying strong, like at the start of the year that we saw. Just
3: a quick word on this one as well. Shares, 26% higher year today. I put put the five-year chart in earlier on as well. And it's been a great performance. It's been a great performing company. And I I, I noticed with uh, very much interest that 6% comparable sales growth figure. So fantastic from Royal Dutch Phillips. You have to applaud where you see it. The problem is, is the expectation in the price now from the shareholders as well, because the share, I mean, it trades on 19 times forward, which is very respectable, not particularly demanding compared with some, uh, but again, much higher than where it was. Uh, but, but what I like about this company is that for years, CNBC presenters have got uh, you've gone and go, oh, yeah, but you do consumer products. Oh, you do. And, and they've got it wrong. I can think of one presenter in particular who got it very wrong over many years. And and, and Franz van Houten got very frustrated because, no, this is what I do. We don't do this anymore. We got rid of that. We got rid of TVs. We got rid of this. And uh, and so it's a very focused business now. So it should be doing well, is my point, And it is. The, the one thing
0: about Philips, though, it, there's always something in the numbers that isn't spectacular, right? But whenever you look at, I mean, maybe it's because, and I know Franz has worked very hard to kind of um, focus this business more than it than it was, but there's always something, isn't there? And I'm just looking down through um, this some of these healthcare numbers. Adjusted a bit, our margin decreased to 12.1% in the monitoring and analytics and sleep and respiratory care operations. Decreased to 12.1%. Decreased. And that's down to tariffs, apparently. Mm. Um, and then when you go to the personal health business, um, the adjusted EBITDA margin decreased to 13 point. Again, another decrease. Mm. And then they talk about operational leverage from sales growth being offset by investment in advertising. And that, it's just, just, you know, i have just make the point, there's always yes. something that isn't quite firing on all cylinders at some point. So
3: um, is the summary on this one, yes, the sales continue to grow on a like-for-like basis, but they're having to lose something on the margin front in order to get those sales?
0: Well, it it always just seems like it feels like a work in progress. I mean, I think it's interesting that point about, yeah, we've got to up the advertising to get market share. But of course, that is a cost to be borne at the moment. And as we are nervous and the markets are nervous about whether we are staring down the barrel of a recession running into 2020. Of course, comments like this begin to just make you wonder if the the lights are flashing amber on the old control panel here, because if companies are having to spend a lot more to get every customer, then you think, okay, now we're in a bare knuckle fight in a market
3: where perhaps the opportunity is decreasing, not increasing. I've never been in the bare knuckle fight. It must be terrifying. Uh, Especially with my dainty little hands. I'll never play the piano again. Okay, let's move on. rubbish to begin with. Right, let's have a quick look. I've got a few things for you I just want to embrace for you as well. Uh, markets last week just had a bit of a tempered week. Why did they have a tempered week? Why do we see the US indices fall a little bit? Yeah, Yo, you got it as well because there's not going to be as much cool load as the market wants. Poor little market. Yeah, because that's what the expectations have done. They've gone from, yeah, we're going to get 50 basis points on the 31st of July to a measly 25. Oh, boo-hoo market. Get over it. That's because the economy and people think it's getting better. That's because the manufacturing data last. Week wasn't awful. That's because the jobless claims wasn't awful. That's good news. I think some of you seem to forget that sometimes. So, yeah, keep an eye on that. We have got GDP at the tail end of this week. That'll be interesting. Something that will also keep the markets unnerved. In fact, I'll give you two factors that will keep it unnerved. One is that the debt ceiling negotiations continue, of course, trying to get a deal between the Treasury and Congress uh, before uh, they break for the summer is very important for Mr. Mnuchin and the administration as well. Plus, you've got around about a third of the SP reporting this week. Yeah? So that is a big Barometer of corporate earnings coming out. So I would say you look at the GDP at the tail of the week, look at the earnings figures, look at the debt discussions, and look at all those expectations for a rate cut as well. Some of you guys just want 50 basis points. OK, let's have a look at the Asian markets. Uh, we are down six-tenths of 1% on the Shanghai Composite. Again, this is why we're coming off a little bit of that exuberance about big cuts because the economy is so bad coming off the table. Seven-tenths of 1% lower for the Hang Seng as well. Let's move on to opening calls for the European market. And there's very little to uh, get yourself excited about on that one as well. Again, lots going on politically in Europe this week. Jeffrey. Thanks very much, Steve.
0: Um, New tensions in the Gulf have pushed oil prices higher after a British flag tanker was seized by Iran in the Strait of Hormuz on Friday. Video released by Tehran appears to show the moment the ship was raided. It comes two weeks after the UK seized an Iranian tanker off the coast of Gibraltar. The UK is reportedly thinking about freezing some Iranian assets in response. Chancellor Philip Hammond told British media, however, it is unclear what can be done. Prime Minister Theresa May is set to chair an emergency COBRA meeting later today. UK Foreign Secretary Jeremy Hunt has spoken with his French and German counterparts who have condemned Iran's actions. He said Tehran views the seizure as a, quote, tit-for-tat situation.
2: This is uh, totally and utterly unacceptable. It raises very serious
5: questions about the security of British shipping and, indeed, international
1: shipping in the Straits of Hormuz.
0: UK Foreign Secretary. Well, let's get out to Dan who joins us from Abu Dhabi and perhaps can give us a regional perspective on this story. Dan, so we've heard a lot from the UK government about uh, how it wishes to respond. What are the regional players saying
5: about how this is ratcheting up tensions? Good morning, Jeff. Morning, everyone. Well, we've just finished a conversation with one analyst out here in the Middle East who says that we are now on a pathway to escalation as this crisis between the UK and Iran certainly shows no signs of easing. The risk of a miscalculation or potential military confrontation has also increased after this British tanker became the latest pawn in this clash between Iran and the West in this vital oil choke point of the Strait of Hormuz. Now, what we know is that Iran's Revolutionary Guards captured this tanker on Friday and we've seen that dramatic footage of what appeared to be an air and sea assault on the ship. Iran says this ship, which is called the Stina Impero, was captured after it collided with a smaller craft. But we've also heard from the UK who say, look, this ship was actually in Omani waters when it was taken and that this was a clear violation of international law. So where is it now? Well, we understand that the ship has been taken to an Iranian port in Banda Abbas, where Iran says it's going to stay for several weeks now while they conduct an investigation. Later today, we are likely to hear more from the UK side who are are expected to announce measures to not just curb this type of behaviour in the future, but also measures to attempt to get the ship back into their own possession. Uh, The UK has described this as a hostile act. They're also demanding the release of the ship. And we have also heard threats from the UK towards Iran uh, calling for serious consequences to be taken and also advising other UK ships in The region to avoid the area. In terms of what we've heard from other regional actors, the response so far from Iran has been mostly muted. However, we have seen tweets from the Iranian Foreign Minister Javad Sarif. He said, unlike the piracy in the Strait of Gibraltar, our action in the Persian Gulf is to uphold international maritime rules. He went on to say that, as I said in New York, it is Iran that guarantees the security of the Persian Gulf and the Strait of Hormuz. He went on to say that the UK must cease being an accessory to economic terrorism of the United States. Now, that rhetoric, you could say, means that a potential for a miscalculation is also very high, but at the same time, it could also further complicate Iran's very fragile relationship with the UK and more broadly the European efforts that are underway to save the JCPOA, which is, of course, Iran's nuclear deal. And Britain is now very clearly tied up in that as well, essentially stuck between a rock and a hard place. Does Britain's new prime minister side with the United States and attempt to further push iran away and isolate the regime or does it side with the europeans in attempting to keep this deal alive so certainly a lot for the uk to be juggling at the moment as tensions out here continue to rise guys
0: dan thank you very much for the report let's squeeze in a quick break we'll be back in a moment the race to become the next british prime minister enters the final stretch with a winner due to be announced on tuesday Uh, we'll take you to downing street live after the break for a preview
4: And if you just can't get enough of Sporkbox, be sure to tune in for our very own podcast. Head to cnbc.com, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts to have a listen and download today's episode. For our listeners out there, stick around for some more.
3: A CNBC
6: signature event.
3: Oh, a lot of Brexit-related, Boris Johnson-related headlines over the weekend. Some of them might even be true. Uh, UK Chancellor Philip Hammond has announced the, he will resign from the government on Wednesday if Boris Johnson becomes the next Prime Minister. Speaking to the BBC, Mr Hammond said his stance on Brexit deal uh, was at odds with Mr Johnson's.
2: I'm sure I'm not going to be sacked because I'm going to resign uh, before we get to that point. I intend... Really? ...assuming um, that uh, Boris Johnson becomes the next Prime Minister... I understand that his conditions for serving in his government would include accepting a no-deal exit on the 31st of October. That is not something I could ever sign up to. It's very important that a prime minister is able to have a chancellor who is closely aligned with him uh, in terms of policy. And I therefore intend to resign to Theresa May uh, before she goes to the palace to tender her own resignation on Wednesday.
3: Oh, villain. We, we knew he was going anyway, didn't we? Didn't Sajid Javid try and get his job for the last three or four weeks anyway? Plus, another question for you about the EU wooing Boris Johnson. That was, all, I think that was, might have been Tim Shipman, that one, as well. A couple of questions for you there.
1: Yeah, so in terms of who will take over as Chancellor, I mean, there's no surprise that Philip Hammond, as a man who's been critical of the option of no deal, would not necessarily want to serve in the government of a man who said that October 31st could be no deal, they have to leave the European Union on that date, do or die come what may, as Boris Johnson said quite recently. In terms of what the relationship is going to be between this new government, which we expect to be led by Boris Johnson, I should caveat that, Steve, and the European Union. Well, that's ser- seriously something we have to look at and see what happens. Because in terms of the relationships between his team and European leaders so far, there's not a huge amount of clarity coming out of Brussels or other European capitals. We did hear from Simon Coveney, the Irish fi- uh, Foreign Minister yesterday, talking about the fact that the uh, that both sides would be in real trouble if no deal did become a more likely scenario leading into that October 31st deadline. But in terms of what Philip Hammond, as a very high-profile member of Theresa May's outgoing government, has said, that idea that Parliament could be suspended leading into that October period, something he's not prepared to accept. Take a listen to what he said yesterday to the BBC.
2: This is a parliamentary democracy, and if the new Prime Minister can persuade Parliament to vote for a no-deal exit, then I will have to accept that. This is a parliamentary democracy. But we can't have um, uh, wheezes like suspending Parliament or proroguing Parliament um, in order to deny Parliament its voice. This matter must be decided in Parliament.
1: And of course, it was Parliament that made life so difficult for Theresa May at the start of this year when they on multiple occasions voted against the withdrawal agreement that her team had negotiated with the European Union. And just last week, we saw a sense of quite how much opposition there might be to any effort by Boris Johnson or Jeremy Hunt to try and avoid parliamentary sovereignty when we saw more than 40 uh, MPs as a majority vote uh, in favour of an idea that the, uh, the, the government would have to force uh, things through uh, Commons seating. And this is a very complicated issue. But essentially, the idea that the Commons would have to sit throughout this period between now and December to talk about something in Northern Ireland as a pretext to making sure that Parliament couldn't be suspended for a long period of time. In terms of what we expect over the next couple of days, five o'clock local time today, we will see the final ballots being handed in by Conservative Party members, they'll be counted up overnight and then late morning some point between 11.00 and noon London time tomorrow, according to the Conservative Party headquarters, we'll have the winner announced, as I've said, likely to be Boris Johnson, Theresa May, as outgoing prime minister, will give her final prime minister's questions in Parliament around lunchtime on Wednesday before heading to Buckingham Palace to formally tender her resignation to Queen Elizabeth II. And at some point after that, the new prime minister, whether it is Jeremy Hunt or Boris Johnson, will then arrive here at 10 Downing Street to take office.
4: Willem, thank you very much for setting up the sequence of events for us to watch out for this week. Joining us now is Kamal Sharma, who is Director of G10 FX Strategy, Bank of America, Mira Lynch. And Kamal, we're all watching very closely Morning. sterling pound fortunes this week. We declined to the 124 handle versus the dollar last week, uh, off that to 125. So a little bit firmer, but still fairly sharp decline. new summer range for, for many uh, investors, travelers. What do you make of the level and how dicey it is for investors to be trading in and out of pound this week?
6: I think it's important to put the pound move into some context here, Francesca, because um, the the narrative is, it seems to be very easy that if the pound falls, it has to be always Brexit related. Um, We've got to remember that there has been a significant global macroeconomic um, slowdown. Uh, and that's permeated into weak UK economic data. So a combination of Brexit woes and also UK macroeconomic slowdown, the Carney pivots have uh, contributed to the um, slowdown, uh, the weakness in the pound.
4: I take your point about the strength of the dollar, but the charts on euro sterling do not look much better. So uh, relatively speaking, it does feel as though there is a Brexit play still.
6: No, absolutely. I think that, that's, that, that goes without, uh, without saying particularly given the stance of the two uh, leadership candidates. Uh, The risks are for further weakness. Um, It all depends on how... The structure of the UK cabinet uh, forms what Boris Johnson or Jeremy Hunt say in their initial commentary uh, around the uh, the Brexit negotiations. Always remember, this is a two-way negotiation, this is not a one-way negotiation. We seem to be having a conversation with ourselves as per usual in terms of the Brexit narrative. But once we start to get into the more nitty-gritty of uh, uh, the UK going back to Brussels to talk with the EU, I think that will give us some sign. But at the moment, I don't think there's any reason to be uh, confident about the pound.
0: Um, You say in your notes, in our view, the risk of a pound flash crash are material. What would be the catalyst for that? I mean, given that we already have uh, chaos Mm. in terms of planning for Brexit, which is fast approaching in October. Investor confidence.
6: Um, The current account deficit um, has been the Achilles heel for the UK for a number of uh, years now. Um, the, uh, the, the, the fact that it's important is that Carney mentioned it at the Financial Stability Rule press conference and the mix of those portfolio flows that are coming into the UK are deteriorating usually and historically the UK has been a very big recipient of FDI. It's now becoming more of a net debt story. So if investors start to suddenly give up on the UK, for example, mm. and given the liquidity conditions in sterling already, that really opens us up to a potential flash crash. Good morning. Good morning.
3: There's absolutely no sign whatsoever that investors aren't absolutely salivating at the 10-year government paper in the United Kingdom. Um, Yields on 10-year British government bonds or gilts fell more than eight basis points to 0.73 of a percent. Uh, That was on the latest uh, earlier this month. Uh, So so my my point is, I don't even know what the yield is now, I mean, it's Mm. significantly below 1%. So yeah, you go. 0.73, exactly what I just said. Mm. there is no sign whatsoever of a lack of appetite for UK paper, especially when you've got, dare I say, continental yields trading below US yields, which is just ridiculous given the debt profiles. Yeah, I think that's a very fair point. The issue here here is that you know, at 124,
6: 125, cable is very undervalued. Hmm. So it does attract a foreign investor bid. Um, We've seen that in the real estate market. We've seen that in in the bond market. But the data that's coming out from the UK, the official data is showing that on a trend basis, we are seeing a slowdown in net portfolio
3: inflows into the UK economy. But the Greek 10-year, sorry, Trevor, I'm just looking at what's the Greek 10-year now? 2.159, something like that as well? I mean, come on. If people want to spend that on a a country that has debt to GDP of over 180%, and when the Italian yields are trading below US 10-year as well... Dare I say it, despite Brexit, the pound's not a... or, or, or uh, UK gills. So I, I, I'm sorry to be kind of robust on a Monday morning, but there, there is no sign of anyone not willing to fund the UK current account deficit. At the moment, so in the in the
6: report that we've recently written, we've said that there are certain criteria that are needed for a current account crisis. We're not saying it's imminent, which is why we're saying it's susceptible to a flash crash rather than a precipitated um, move in the in the pound. One thing I think we'd also have to remember is that the um, global central bank community own around about half a trillion dollars worth of UK reserve assets. Now they are the key player in this. We wrote a report a long time ago saying that even if they sold one percent of that benchmark that they have that's a hundred million dollars worth of sterling selling
0: thank you for listening to squawk box europe express
3: for more market moving news you can head to cnbc.com
4: or join us again on the show with jeff cutmore steve sedgwick and karen show weekdays on cnbc